The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Previously on the Mike Wise Show. Playing for Larry was awesome. Larry was just as a player, you know, no bullshit, straight up, tell you like it is. Um, he didn't do anything he didn't like to do, which I love. You know, he didn't he didn't like to, you know, as a player, watch, you know, just watch film for for the sake of watching it. You know, what I mean, he would scale it down to the stuff he felt we needed. Practice was all business. He was really into preparing and then going out there and playing and bringing bring your A game. You know, not a lot of room beyond time. Be prepared, play hard, play together. Boom. And and it sounds simple, but that's what he did. And he didn't, yeah. he didn't make much more of it than that. And just like a play, he kept it simple. And then he he did his job, and he did it each and every day. Um, so I actually took a lot from playing for him when I coached. My four years coach, I took a lot from him on just keep it simple. That was Hall of Famer Chris Mullen talking about playing for Larry Bird with the Pacers and how he applied the lessons learned from Larry in his own coaching career. Today's guest, Mavericks head coach Rick Carlisle, was an assistant under Bird on the Pacers teams with Mully and also was Larry's teammate on the Celtics, winning a championship in 1986. He's coming up, but first, hit it, darling. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Yes, Darlene. Many of my guests are wise-asses, and most are also wise men. Rick Carlisle qualifies as the latter, and we're really to have happy to have him joining us today. Hi, Rick. Mike, how are you? Good. Very good, sir. Um, I... I'm more excited about your team than I've been in a long time. I know you you've you you have different uh, measures about what you want to do and what the rest of us think you should do. Tell tell me about what you like about this group. Well, it's a group that has developed some uh, over the last three years. Uh, we've got some continuity. Uh, we've re-signed some guys that we've invested time and effort into um, player development. And so, you know, and we've got a couple of guys in Doncic and Porzingis that we believe are real franchise caliber players. And, you know, the model for winning at the highest level in the NBA now is you've got to have um, at least two and, you know, in some cases three guys that are, you know, truly – high, high-level players or MVP candidates. And, you know, look, Doncic and, and Porzingis aren't in the MVP conversation as of yet in their careers, but we feel that uh, with their uh, level of youth and level of ability and, and remaining potential that, um, you know, they're, they at some point will be in that conversation. And, and we like the group of young veteran role players we have around those guys. 
you, you've been around a lot of what people call phenoms, wonderkins, whatever. Where does Luka Doncic rate in your group of, of, of just great young players with unlimited potential? Well, he's extremely special. And, you know, I, I'm always very hesitant to use the word great mm. um, with describing young players because <clears throat> there's so much to be learned and so much to be proven. But, you know, he has, he has the ability he has the feel, he has the, you know, some people are, call it the it factor, you know, whatever it is. He, he, he has the tools to be a historically great player, um, but there's, uh, there's much, much work for him, for him to do um, to get there. He's got to continue to develop. Um, obviously, winning is a big part of getting in those conversations, um, but his size, his feel, his vision, you know, he's just an extremely unusual guy um, for a six, seven point guard. I look at all the other guys that are going to need to step up a little bit, the Jalen Brunsons, um, some of your, some of your other players, young guys, well, shoot, you, you got Seth Curry in free agency, um, Tim Hardaway Jr. Anybody that, you you almost asking you almost have to ask a little more from because of the absence of shoot one of the greatest greatest players in NBA history Dirk Nowitzki retiring. Well, that's a very valid question, and I think the I think the bottom line is in today's NBA where you know the um, Commissioner Silver and the Players Association and ownership has done a great job of really making this league um, very level, the playing field very level, you know, from um, the teams that are the big market teams to the teams that are the small market teams. I mean, look at, look at Milwaukee last year. I mean, they oh. were, they were, you know, so close to being in the NBA finals and that's, is you know that's the epitome of a small market team and so you know the margins are extremely thin and so the answer to your question is that everybody needs to step up you know um there's always going to be more focus on the guys that are the franchise players uh leaders of the team you know guys that are viewed to be the quote-unquote you know um you know top top players on on a given team but you know, stars need to be stars. That's a that's a that's a phrase that that is very accurate when it comes to mm. success during a season and success during a playoffs. And your role players have got to do some special things for you to have a special year. As a coach, you have to sort of move forward, look look to the future. But I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about Dirk and just what what the post Maverick light post Maverick Dirks are going to be like. I, I just remember being you guys coming to town to Washington and you spoke so fondly of him. And I remember whatever he said, I just remember thinking, this is it. I knew it was it. He hadn't announced his retirement yet, but I just the way things were winding down, there was a genuine affection on both your parts. And there was a sort of like, we know this is going to be probably the end of the run. What are you, what are you going to miss most? Well, uh, the person, <laughs> you know, yeah, Dirk, Dirk, the just one of the the great people 
um, just in terms of character, um, intrinsic values with with respect to how he approached his job, the game, being a great teammate, those kinds of things. Um, a completely selfless superstar that um, wanted to be coached and you know made you know, allowed himself to be unconditionally coached by whoever it was, whether it was Don Nelson, Avery Johnson, or or myself. And, uh, you know, the three of us, you know, I've had conversations with Nellie and Avery um, about Dirk over the years, and, you know, we all gushed the same things, the same, you know, the the same praises, the same, you know, Mm -hmm. descriptions of, wow, you know, this guy's just, so different he's just so he's just 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 not your typical superstar he's so great and you know it's just you you can go on and on and on and so uh you know but i think one of the things that became a reality at the end was you know the last couple of years were difficult um the the physical challenges for you know being you know 39 and 40 years old um presented themselves uh there was surgery headed into the last year which um which Dirk Dirk thought was going to be you know a positive thing we thought it was going to be a positive thing the recovery ended up to be longer and more difficult and you know so he didn't he didn't get on the court until mid December yeah of, that's of, right of, two, of 2018 and it was just um it was just a really tough a uh, really tough way for him to have to go out now at the very end of the season, you know, he had, he had 50 points in the last two games back to back home against Phoenix on the road against San Antonio and a couple of amazing tributes, you know, the one at home, you know, where, um, you know, he went for 30 points in his last home game. That was the night he announced that it would be his last home game. Um, five of his, the guys that he really, uh, worshipped and emulated um, coming up through the years were there as a surprise tribute. Um, uh, Charles Barkley, Sean Kemp was one of his favorite guys, Scotty Pippen, um, yeah. Detlef Schrempf, and uh, and it was just uh, it, it was just such a special moment. And then you know that that thing went on for an hour after the game then we had to get on a plane and go to go to play in San Antonio the next night and they had a they had a tribute to Dirk that was so emotional. Oh, it was it tremendous. Him, brought him to tears, you know, during yeah. during pregame warmups and then he was able to go for 20 in that game and um you know, That's... so it was it was uh it it was extremely special and I, you know, uh, of all the accomplishments that he's had in this game, you know, scoring whatever it is, 32,000 points, you know, uh, being a a league MVP, a finals MVP, um, 13, 14-time All-Star, whatever it is. You know, to me, the mere fact that he was able to get back on the floor and perform at that level, particularly down the stretch of the season, may may have been one of his most amazing accomplishments. I I completely agree with you, and I I look at all the guys who try and – cut and paste their bodies back together to get to somewhere, you know, to that turn back the clock night. He had a turn back the clock few months that was just incredible. And is there any, at any point, do you have a moment with him where you lose it almost, or just like, geez, 
not just the 2011 NBA title, but just what what you guys have been through together, basketball and personal wise. And uh, is there is there a Rick Carlisle, Dirk Nowitzki moment that that I could share with my listeners, or is or will you keep that between yourselves? Well, you know there there have been there have been many over the years. Um, yeah. You know our our team has changed a lot since the championship. You know we we didn't bring back the same team following the championship, and so you know really it's it's been. Um, Dirk and I, since that time, have been the two that have have consistently been with the club. So, you know, we've been through some of the ups and downs. He he's been great through all that, and and there there have been there have been some moments where you know I just I've just I've just gotten emotional, you know, about yeah what what he's meant to um, me and my family. I mean, I you know I've got a daughter now that's 15 years old, who, um, you know, if I can. Uh, get through the next four years of my contract will have been in pre-k kindergarten first second third fourth fifth sixth seventh eighth ninth tenth eleventh and twelfth grade in the same school in the same city and that you know that just that just doesn't happen much in this business and i don't know if you saw it mike but yeah. in the ceremony after dirk's last home game you know i had i had my daughter abby out there and yeah. uh, I, I talked just for a second about um what it's meant to to my family and then she ran over and gave him a hug and that was that yeah. was an emotional moment you know yeah. so look he's he's just he's just a very very special person and you know i i can't wait for there to be a statue out in front of the american airlines center um to pay ultimate tribute to what he's meant to both the mavericks and the city a German in Dallas and a statue. What that? You know, the, the, I look at your team, and it's uh, and to me, it's the testament of not only David Stern, but Don Nelson, who obviously originally had Sarunas Marshallonis. I think of your work in New Jersey, you and Chuck with Drazen, the late Drazen Petrovic. And I look, and I, to me, I, I root for the Mavericks not because I like you as a person and I think you're a hell of a coach. I root for the Mavericks because it's the world's team, and it still is. I mean, you, you the, to me, it's you've got players for Zingas and Cleaver, like people from all over uh, the place. And it, J.J. Barea, I, I just, like I said, like this is what basketball, the sublime choreography of teamwork, the thing that we all grew up watching, whether it was your 86 Celtics or whether it was a 73 Knicks, the hit, hit the open man, the find it, you know, give it to the guy who's going well. All the things that the basketball encompassed in my life, the Mavericks represent a lot of that. Well, I agree with you. Um, and, you know, Dallas, you know, listen, I, a lot of this goes back to uh, what Donnie Nelson did. And I'm not even sure the exact time frame. I do know, I believe it was um, late 80s when, when he was able to, I use the term mastermind, um, getting Sarunas Marshallonis from mm. Russia to the Golden State Warriors. And all the things that had to happen, smoke-filled rooms, you know, <laughs> I mean, um the the limitless you know endless number of trips back and forth to whatever country i think he was lithuanian you know he he was donnie was over there like all the time and a lot of barriers had to be broken um 
And it, 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 when up to that point, I believe that there had been zero international players or maybe one in the NBA. And once Marshall Lunas um, was freed up to come over to the NBA, the floodgates opened. You know, then there was yes. Petrovic. Um, you know, then there was Kukoc. And then there was, you know, Sabonis. And then, you know, and I was fortunate. I, 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 was, I, was, with, um, I was with Petrovic in, in, in New Jersey, and I was in Portland as an assistant to P.J. Carlissimo when, when Sabonis came over. And, uh, you know, you, you talk about being around, being around two guys, you know, two historically great guys. I mean, that was that was amazing. And so, um, but the Mavericks, you know, and a lot of this goes back to uh, Don Nelson Sr. But but without Don Nel- Don Nelson Jr. Uh, Donnie Nelson, yeah, and the work the work he did to get Marshall Lewis over here, um, you know, the NBA would look would look extremely different today. It, it just would not be the same. The game wouldn't be the same. And so. I give an amazing amount of credit to to Donnie Nelson for, you know, really starting the influx um, of the of the, the the high level international players into the NBA. It's changed the game in so many good ways. I can't say, and I and and I think if I talk to shoot uh, Goran Dragic about this, he said, you know, we grow up a little differently. We don't have that star tiered system in you're not treated special when you're 13 years old. And he said, I think it's helped because a lot of us have to work our butts off to get to where we are. And the, the, the real treatment doesn't start until you become a big time player for your club team. And he said, that takes a while. And so I, I think it's great in 20 different ways. Um, I, I missed you by a year. My first real job was at the New York Times. They gave me a job in 1994. They gave me the New Jersey Nets. I missed you by a year. You went to Portland that year. Well, I never really saw Drazen Petrovic up close. What was he like? I mean, I, I looked the, the 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 passing of him in the car accident that took his life. That to me was like a defining moment in that franchise in so many sad ways because even when I was there, everybody talked about it, whether it was Derek Coleman, Kenny Anderson, they just talked about how how wonderful it was to play with this guy and how crushing it was to learn of his passing. Well, as a human being, he was a joyful person. Um, and he also played the game with great joy. He played with uh, a high level of he was he would smile he was energetic he he involved the crowd um, and interestingly you know when you go back and and find the real old films of Petrovic playing uh, overseas and I think he played for Real Madrid before he came over um, he was one of these guys that was super emotional you know bordering on you know. Uh, frenetic, the w- the way he would play to the crowd and and work the officials and all that stuff. You know, he he came over to the NBA and he was just so I guess respectful is the word. And he he was uh, he he really toned toned that part of his game down. And he I, it just looked to me like he felt, hey, look, I got to earn my you know, I got to earn my stripes here. I got to do this, you know, the way I did it back over there, which is 
coming up through the system and, and earning my respect, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I was with him a lot, and, um, you know, I, we talked a lot about basketball, and I always got the sense that that's, that that's how he felt about it. But his second year um, in the NBA was the year that the Nets got to the um, playoffs, and I believe it was 92. And that was the first year we had been in the playoffs in a long time with the Nets. And that sort of joyful exuberance um, personality came out in a, in a massive way. We, played, we were playing Cleveland, who was a very, very good team. I think we won game three at home. He had a huge game. Derek Coleman had a huge game. Um, you know, Kenny Anderson was, was, was starting to play at a, at a high level. And, but, but, but Drazen was the guy that, that was, you know, just kind of the emotional engine on that team. And, you know, he just, he, and I think this is one of the things that people see in Doncic. And one of the reasons Doncic, um, is got so many followers on Instagram and everything else. He smiles a lot. He plays <laughs> with a flair. You know, he he does things out there that you know keep you extremely interested in the game. And um, you know, the loss of Drazen was was just uh, it was it was it was gut wrenching and heartbreaking yeah. on on so 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 many levels. The you're so right. Luka Doncic has a lot of Petrovich in him, in his game, in ways that I never even thought of before. But you're right. He's uh, not not just flashy, but just thoughtful in everything he does and emotional. And I just, yeah. Um, you, before you coached the Mavericks, you, you, had, you had many great mentors. Chuck Daly had to be one of them. Um, and was that the moment, was that one of the main reasons you, and pardon my ignorance here, why you got involved with the National Basketball Coaches Association and you became the president of that organization? Well, well, this is, you know, Chuck, Chuck was the guy that I spoke to about that. You know, that was a, that was an unusual situation. I, I had just, uh, I was in Chicago at the pre-draft camp in 2005. Um, and there was, we had a yearly meeting in Chicago and for, I believe what happened was we had, uh, I was with Indiana at the time as a head coach and we had a workout, uh, somewhere with, a you know, uh, one of the younger players or something, somebody that was going into the draft. And so I, I didn't, I was unable to get to the um, the meeting there, and so the next day I ran into uh, Michael Goldberg, who um, was the executive director at that time. He he has since passed away two and a half years ago, and he was <clears throat> he was a very very special person um, in developing the the NBA Coaches Association to where to where it is today. And Michael came to me and he said. Coach Carlisle, you know, if you know Michael Goldberg, he's a he, he's a New York guy. He's got a he's got an accent. He goes, I need to speak with you about something, sir. You know, and I and I said, uh, Michael, what's what's going on? He goes, Well, um, we were uh, we were, uh, you know, it was it was unfortunate it was unfortunate you were unable to get to the meeting yesterday, but uh, I have some I have some exciting news for you. <laughs> I said, I said, I said, Michael, what can this possibly be? He goes, well, 
You've been elected president of the coaches association. <laughs> I said, what? And he said, no, yeah, it was, um, unanimous. Yeah. And, and, and I said, well, look, I mean, well, how, how's this possible? I wasn't even at the meeting. He goes, well, somebody nominated you. And then, you know, you got a lot of votes. And, uh, I said, well, look, I don't know how this works, but I mean, I get a chance to think about this and maybe yeah. talk to a few people. He goes, yeah, of course, of course you can do that. Da, da, da. Yeah. And, you know, and I, and I, the guy that, had, that, that was the outgoing president was Lenny Wilkins, who's, you know, one of the great yeah. coaches, great, you know, he's enshrined in the, in the hall of fame as both a player and a coach. Um, and he was, he was enshrined as one of the, the staff members of the dream team. He's three times enshrined in the Naismith um, basketball hall of fame. And, you know, he had been doing it for 18 years and he just had just decided it was time to, you know, move on and, and, and let somebody else do it. And so eventually, you know, I said, I said, yes. Um, and the guy, the guy that you know convinced me it was a good idea was Chuck Daly. He, he said, look, he goes, you know, you're going to, you're going to meet a lot of people um, from the league office, you're gonna you're gonna develop relationships. He says that I believe um, will be very beneficial to both you and the coaches association. He goes, but it, he goes, I've never been president of it. He goes, I, but I do believe it's a lot of work, and it'll be a lot of work. He goes, but I think I think it'd be good. And so I accepted, and you know, this is in 2005, and wasn't really sure what I was getting into at all. Um, but it turned out that the job at that time was all about trying to get a pension increase and which they hadn't had one and they hadn't had one in close to 10 years. And so, you know, that was an undertaking that was, um, very Mm. challenging. And, you know, within two years we we were able to get, get it done, but it was, it was all about trying to find, um, the right people to kind of carry the flag for us, selling ownership on the importance of, you know, uh, taking care of coaches long term, et cetera, et cetera. Pat Riley was was extremely instrumental. Um, Mickey Arison, the owner of the Miami Heat, carried the flag for us. He was the chairman of the Board of Governors at the time. And we worked with him, and we were able to get our initial increase done then. And so – and then they moved on. And look, it's been 14 years, and I'm, and I'm still the president. Um, you know, <laughs> this is this is a labor of love at this point, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And look, we've we've come a long way, and and a lot a lot has been accomplished. You know, we're 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 generating revenue for the coaches association. We're we're doing some things that are outside the box that are going to have some upside in terms of development we've we've gotten the, the pension to where you know it's it's really at a, a in a very very good place um equality is now you know one of the most important things that we're we're talking about and and dealing with you know we have women now that are that are becoming um you know qualified assistant coaches or, or I should say qualified coaches in the NBA who just happen to be women. I mean, it's, it's so true. Yeah. I, I, I mean, and, and that's, that's, that's the key thing, you know, I mean, yeah. Becky Hammond is, um, has had some head coaching interviews. I believe that she will be an NBA head coach 
you know, at some point. Um, Jenny Busick uh, works for the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, Kara Lawson just went with the um, Boston Celtics. Uh, Lindsey Gottlieb just signed with uh, uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, and there are, there are some others. And so, look, this is important to me because I've got a 15-year-old daughter that really has um, very, very little interest in the game of basketball itself. I mean, you know, when she goes to a, a Mavericks game, it's about two hours and 17 minutes of texting, Snapchatting, and you know, FaceTiming and everything else. I mean, she she goes and has a blast because she likes, you know, she likes watching some of our players, and she usually goes and hangs hangs out with her friends, but. You know, it's important. She's there to, to support to that. Yeah, but it's important for me to be able to say to her that she can accomplish anything that a man can do as long as she works to become equally qualified. And yeah. so, what we're working on now with the coaches' association is an, an initiative we started with the uh, NBA this year, which is called the NBA Coaches Equality Initiative, and it's all about development and awareness. And so. You know, each mm -hmm. year at the Vegas Summer League, we're having a two-day summit where everyone has the equal opportunity to partake and improve. And, you know, we, we know that quotas don't work in professional sports with respect to coaching. I mean, we've seen it in the NFL. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. You've got to get people qualified and, and get them in the conversation, and then they've got to be able to get in the interviewing process and then ultimately have a chance to become a head coach in the NBA. But we believe it starts with, you know, giving people an equal opportunity um, to get better and to grow. And then the other part of this initiative, which is really exciting for us, is we're going to we're creating a database that will be accessible to owners and general managers and decision makers. That's going to list every coach um, in the entire NBA. Um, their people that they've worked for, the responsibilities that they've had, um, uh, their philosophical view of the game, um, and NBA programs that they participated in. And we also hope to have, from a technology standpoint, the ability to have a link at the bottom where you click it and you see an actual interview with this person. And so, you know, there, there's no reason now that um, decision makers aren't going to be able to know exactly who everybody is at, 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 at all their various stages of development. And so um, the league this has been great. Yeah, no, the league, the league has, has been great. They, they, they understand the value in this. And so, um, you know, it's something we're really excited about, but the work, the work goes on and it's, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, to continue to educate people and to create situations where where we can um, see everyone grow. Yeah, and I don't want to geek out about this too much because, but just being around it, the only thing we know is media, or the only thing we really see. If anybody doesn't know out there, our listeners, uh, the, the National Basketball Coaches Association, it's the labor association that represents every coach in the NBA, um, from shoot head coaches, assistant coaches, alumni. And and I think it was founded by um, Tommy Heinsohn, right, Rick? That's correct. And, yeah, yep. and then I think in, in '76. And we don't like. I don't. The only thing I know is when I show up, people always say when I've 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 been fortunate enough to cover seven Olympics, and they always say if you don't cry at the Olympics at some point, whether you're a reporter, a fan, whatever, coach, you you don't have a heart. Well, if you don't show up 
And to when you give the the lifetime, the Chuck Daly Lifetime Achievement Award, and and you don't like, for instance, when Jack Ramsey got it in 2010, um, it, I, was that that wasn't posthumously, was it? He was still around. No, no. But, every everyone everyone that's been honored has has been living to this point. Now they yeah, all, and, not every yeah. not everyone has attended the ceremony. Like when we, when we did Casey Jones. Um, a couple of years ago, his son Kit came um, because Casey yeah. wasn't doing particularly well physically. Um, so yeah, but but every time that it shows up, it's it's such an it's such a great moment. The stories, I mean, shoot, Hubie in 2017 had people crying, had people laughing. He had so many stories. He was so honored by the whole thing, and 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 your uh, the way you pay homage to those guys and talk about them you could you could see a real affection in your voice and you know it it's a really great thing and i i, I wouldn't um it, it's when i say the all the legends brunch is the greatest thing about the nba all-star game the best thing about the <laughs> nba finals other than the play on the court is that that award i mean you just you, you get living history in front of you yeah, and like th- this year, this year Frank Layden was honored. You know, on oh, the committee. Uh, yeah. And, and listen, th- you talk about entertaining. I mean, <laughs> you know, he, he's he's up there saying, you know, and, and he's the Mister Self-Deprecating. You know, he's a kind of a Rodney Dangerfield type. You know, I accept this on behalf of all C students. You know, or you know, it's <laughs> just one liner after one liner. You know, and of course Frank yeah. was a Frank was a great coach, and in 1984, Frank did something no one has ever done. He won coach of the year, executive of the year. Um, he coached the all-star game and he won the J. Walter Kennedy citizenship award all in the same year, which is just un- unbelievable, wow. you know? And so, uh, so like, yeah, that's been, that's been phenomenal. And, and again, that, that's something, that's a partnership we have with the NBA and it's, and it's a way to, to continue, continue to honor the memory of, of the great Chuck Daly, who was a great mentor of mine and, and such a great friend to so many. And I, and I know you knew Chuck well yourself. Yeah. Yeah. He was, it was uh, just made you feel important, irrespective of if you were working for a small paper, big paper. He, and I, I remember walking up to him in Sacramento, my first job at the little paper that's now out of business. And he was just like, come here, what do you need? And I, wow, it's Chuck Daly. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, we're talking with Rick Carlisle, uh, NBA coach of the year in 2002 the NBA All-Star Game head coach 2004, and, of course, the coach of the world champion Dallas Mavericks in 2011. Still one of my favorite finals. I look at that team, and, uh, you know, the only team that shocked me more was maybe the 2004 uh, Detroit Pistons beating the Lakers. But if, if you talk to Rick about those Mavericks, he knew they were going to win, and uh, they were not the underdog people thought they were. You were a player before you were a coach. People know you as a coach now. I look at your career. Um, you played on, and I, John Thompson said this once. He said, said I'm not going to talk, I'm not going to do your dumb Superman versus Mighty Mouse sports arguments. I'm not going to compare LeBron to, to Magic. I'm not going to compare him to Jordan. I'm not going to say, because every time you do that, you disrespect the next team. Well, I still like doing it because I think the 86 Celtics were the greatest basketball team of all time outside of the dream team are you biased in this matter or 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 would you even put them in that category uh you're talking about the 86 team yes yeah look the 86 team was 
it was just that was just an amazing season. You know, Bill Walton played 80 games. I mean, you know that we just hmm. uh, every everything everything really um, really hit on all cylinders. And you know, from Bill from Bill Walton's health to um, everything else, I, I was fortunate. It was my second year in the league, and because Walton was there, um, you know, he was coming off the bench. You know, he goes in the game off the bench. Then you know that allows guys like me that were, you know, I was just a, I was the, the epitome of a of a marginal role player. But when I was on the floor with Bill Walton, you know, I was I was all of a sudden a hell of a lot better player, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, we were able to play with our second unit with, with usually Walton, and Mikhail or Walton and Parrish in there, and uh, you know it allowed. You know, me and Jerry Seasting and Scott Webman and, and, and Greg Kite and guys like that um, to not only, you know, be able to get in the game, but I actually, you know, be able to play well and, and at times extend leads. And so, um, but that team had a, had a DNA. It had a, a, a knowledge of the game. It was, it was guys that, you know, were completely, completely dialed into winning the championship. Um, you know, we had had a tough loss to the Lakers the previous season um, in '85. The year before that was the the storied seven game series yeah. between Boston and L.A., where you had everything. You had you had you know Henderson steal. You had McHale throwing Rambus on the floor. You had fights. You had this. You had that. Um, that's your that's coming. your senior year at Virginia, right? Right. I was watching that on. <clears throat> I was watching that on TV, you know. I mean, can and, you and, could uh, you even imagine? I know you're playing. You just got done playing with Ralph Sampson, but could you even imagine in two years you'd be on that team? <laughs> well, listen. I mean, back in those days, um, you know, when when I was a senior, um, and the, the NBA draft came. Oh, third round. There, there, there were there were ten rounds in the draft, and yeah. I didn't. I didn't even know who drafted me until the following day. Uh, my agent called me and said, Boston drafted you. And I was like, oh, no. You know, cause it, they just won the championship. They, yeah. you know, why, would, why would they make any changes, you know? And so <laughs> yeah. you know, what happened was I went into camp there, and, um, you know, the, they had, we had 14 guys total in camp because Gerald Henderson was holding out. He was a free agent. Cedric Maxwell was holding out. And all of a sudden, you know, I was getting – you know, a lot of reps with the second unit. I was, I yeah. was, you know, one of the first guys off the bench in exhibition games. And uh, before you knew it, we in the second exhibition game, Ainge went for 25, I went for 18, and they decided that, you know, they could trade Gerald Henderson and get, you know, get a draft pick and that Danny could be the starter and that I could be a roster player. And so, you know, I started hanging around the NBA. That's that's amazing. The whole story. Um, true story or not, we've heard a lot of these over the years. And and Bill Walton, as you know, is one of the great characters. Did did you guys go uh, with Walton to a Grateful Dead show that Bill took you to? Yeah, that was in, uh, let's see, that was in the fall of 85. And the show was in Worcester. Yep. And so... Uh, you know, Bill went over there early in the afternoon. He 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 got the stage all set up. He got it set up so <laughs> that I, I think I think eight of us went over for the uh, for the show, and we were basically sitting, you know, um, on stage, side stage, whatever you want to call it, watching. And then there was a 
then there was an intermission, um, which there always were, were in dead shows over the years. And uh, so, you know, we were back there in a room with, you know, Bob Weir and Garcia, Jerry Garcia and Mickey Hart and Billy Kreutzman and Phil Lesh and, you know, all those, all those guys um, hanging out, shooting the shit. It was, it was really interesting. And look, the, the Grateful Dead, I did not, I did not know their music much at that point in time, but um, that was a great show. And, you know, now, look, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of, you know, kind of hardcore jazz. But, but the other thing that I really love is I love listening to the to the dead on um, on on XM channel twenty three. I mean, you know, I <laughs> you I was that. at I probably I probably went to twenty five Grateful Dead shows over a period of about ten years. And uh, after Walton you know, took oh, you, oh sure, yeah. So but Bill but, Walton but, introduced but, you to the Grateful Bill, Dead. Bill got you, it started. You became a deadhead after Walton brought you. Yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah, you should have just got a Volkswagen bus and left left your uh, family and everything. That's what most people do. Um, I always felt uh, the the crazy thing about it is there's still people still give Danny Ainge a hard time. He didn't go to that show. Where where was he? <laughs> I don't know. I just remember the guys that went. It was it was myself. Um, yeah. I believe Parrish Bird. Yeah. Wedman, McHale, um, I think Dennis Johnson may have gone. Yeah. Um, Jerry Jerry Seasting, and there may have been there may have been one other guy, maybe been like Greg Kite or somebody like that. But uh, for, you know, it was just a very interesting <clears throat> cultural experience too. You know, if you hadn't been to a Grateful Dead show and you go to your first one with Bill Walton, I mean, and Bill played the drums. Um, you in know, the show? for the for the wall. No, 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 no. Um, and a show back in the 70s over in Egypt, you know, in the pyramids. Um, I don't know if there's any YouTube video of it, but it but it, it, it did happen. I talked to him about it, um, and he sat in when they played space, and he was playing drums with, with Kreutzmann <laughs> and Mickey and those guys. And, you know, I, you know and, and look, having been to enough shows, you, you know, at, the, at this point, I could, I could totally see it. Yeah, no, I... Uh, I remember Walton, but you played the piano. Did Walton play the piano too? No, Bill played. Bill played drums. I, I played. played drums. Okay. I played piano. You know. Uh, Where'd you learn? Just growing up in Lisbon. Uh, I actually, I actually taught myself to play in college when I transferred from Maine to Virginia. Um, you know, I had a year to sit out and not play games. I could practice with the team, but not play games and. I'd always been interested in music. I, I felt like I had uh, a pretty good ear and a pretty good feel for music, but I just didn't have any training. And so, you know, I just I found an old piano, got it in my apartment, and I just grinded away and 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 learned how to play that ear. And you know, it it was the the you know there are much better ways to learn <laughs> to try to teach yourself. But if you love something enough and um, you know, or that are interested enough in doing it and have an inkling of, uh, of, of resourcefulness, you know, you can, you can pretty much do anything. Uh, that's, that's, that's tremendous. Uh, you play by ear or you know, the notes, I mean, you read, but read music. I'm more of an ear player and I'm, um, my reading is, you know, I, I read chords and, and play off, 
reading chords and I can kind of feel the melody within the chords when I do it. But um, yeah. And, and, you know, over the years I've, you know, I've been fortunate. I, you know, I sat in with Bruce Hornsby a few times. I sat in with Darius Rucker a few times and, you know, stuff like that is, I mean, that's really cool stuff. You know, when you can sit in with, with musicians like that. I mean, that's, that is just, uh, isn't it funny? Like you, you'd meet uh, whoever it was, you'd see Michael tomorrow and he's, you know, one of the greatest players ever. And, but someone you've seen a lot and he's the owner of the Charlotte Hornets. Uh, But, but you run into somebody, uh, you know, a music God and it's a completely different world. And there's probably an, ah shucks moment for you a little bit like i can't believe this this i can't believe my life has amounted to not only being an nba world championship coach but i'm meeting these guys that are actually musical geniuses well you know hornsby's been a friend for 35 years i i I met him during the no uh, idea 1987 finals um you know his record um it was his first record. I think it was, I forget what it was called, but that was the one with uh, every little kiss, the way it is mandolin rain. And so I, I had actually gotten the book of those songs and, and learned a couple of them, at least learned my version of a couple of them. And so I'm walking down the hallway in, um, in the forum and I run into (laughs) Bruce Hornsby and Huey Lewis walking down the hall. And, Bruce Bruce is from Williamsburg, Virginia, and he followed Virginia basketball, so he knew he knew who I was from that. He goes, "Hey, Rick Carlisle." I said, "Hey, Bruce. You know, nice to meet you." I said, "I actually know how to play a couple of your songs." You know, da da da. We struggled a little bit of a conversation, and so um, we became friends, and over the years, stayed in touch. Um, he had a he had twin sons. One of them was a basketball player. Um, Keith was a basketball player. His son, Russell, was a, ran track and went to University of Oregon and ran track. But Keith played at uh, UNC Asheville and then transferred to LSU. Um, and then we, wow. we had him, we had him in, in training camp with the Mavericks. I think it was two years ago or three years ago. <clears throat> he came in and uh, we get, he, he earned the game ball in one game where he came in and scored 12 points in the fourth quarter. And then, he became a first-round pick of the uh, Texas Legends, which is the G League affiliate of the Mavs. And so he's been in the G League That's grinding nice. it out. Um, and, you know, he, he'll, be, he'll have a career in basketball beyond, beyond playing. But, uh, you know, it's, it's been really neat having a connection with Bruce and, and his family. They're great people. And um, usually every mm. summer I fly up to – Williamsburg and hang out with Bruce in his studio and just, you know, and, and play, play some stuff and listen to him play and have him show me a few things. And, you know, um, but, you know, guys, mm-hmm. guys like him that, that are, you know, such, um, such amazing musicians and so, you know, so creative and, um, and all that, they, they inspire, they inspire you, you know, in, in whatever your endeavor is. And, and that's, that's one of the cool things about music. That's, you know, mm. that's one of the cool things about, you know, the, seeing the Grateful Dead over the years, you know, and when they had their, those nights when they were, you know, just special and when they were on. And then now, you know, um, Dead & Company is out there touring, and they got, you know, John Mayer basically playing in place of, of Garcia. Of Garcia. Passed, 
you know, who passed many years ago, and you know they, they that group sounds absolutely amazing. And uh, you know, Mayer is a uh, is just a monster talent. Wow. So um, look at you know <laughs> you, you know Mike what they what what they say you know the all the guys that played basketball wanted to be rock stars, and all all the guys totally. that were rock stars wanted to be you know they wanted to be football players or basketball players or something like this. And so there's uh you know, there's a, there's a connection between sports and music. Now, Larry, was Larry Bird uh, into music at all? Was he? Uh, I mean, Larry, was, yeah, Larry liked Larry liked music, but he he was not a yeah. he didn't play an instrument or anything like that. No. The three years uh, that he won the MVP, and you let's see, I'm trying to think, 84, 85, 86. You were there for two of them, right? Yeah. Um, uh, that, that to me was some, uh, and, and I understand we live in the here and now, and people look at LeBron and look at Michael and look at Kobe. But Magic and Larry in, those, in the 80s, and, and Larry especially during those three years, it just, there was a rhythm like I never remember a player in my lifetime anyway uh, in the, whatever they, whatever zone is that was, he was almost in a zone for three straight years where this, the shots, the confidence, the passing, everything, you know, and obviously always had his competitive nature, but he there was, he was hardly missing. And I just, I don't know. I, is there anything where you look back at your career and you go, I, I, I know I played with one of the greatest of all time, and this is why. Yeah, you know, it's I got to gather my thoughts here on this one because you know dur- during that three-year period, Larry was the best player on the planet. Um, you know, and three MVPs in a row I think is only done one or two other times, um, and I, I forget who it was. It may have been Chamberlain and um, one other guy, but he was. I think the the most important thing about Larry during that period of time was he was healthy. You know, he was in his prime. Guys that get in that kind of a groove, um, generally speaking, have played enough years to have learned the game, learned what it's about. Um, the importance of winning has gotten into their DNA. Uh, I can tell you one time there was – a really this was really interesting to me i you know i was playing it was my first year with the celtics and uh we went on a west coast trip um every year you know we had the game at the lakers um and so we go out there and we played la one one day it was like i think it was like a noon game la time and so the next day we play in utah and so <clears throat> we come in and um, you know, uh, there was a, the, the story goes that Larry ran into one of the players for the from the Utah team um, in the hotel lobby, and the guy said, <clears throat> "Oh, listen, we're gonna have your number tonight because um, you guys played yesterday and we were off." And da 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 da. And Larry goes, "Well, we'll see what happens tonight." You know, so we we get, we, we 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 get into this game, and it, it's toward the end of the third quarter. Um, and you would have to check the stats, but it, Larry had, I believe, over 30 points. He had um, 12 or 14 rebounds. He had 10 or 11 assists, and he had nine steals. So he was one steal. Wow. 
he was one steal away from a quadruple double. And by the way, we were ahead in the game by between 20 and 30 points at toward the end of the third quarter. And I, and I believe Casey Jones subbed me in the game for Larry Bird, you know, with like a minute to go in the third quarter. And what happened was, you know, we ended up winning the game going away, but I overheard in the locker room, and you remember the Salt Palace, there was a locker room. Yes. You know, it was a very small visiting locker room there. And um, there was a guy who uh, a couple of, of the writers were asking Larry, he, they said, hey, you know, you were one steal away from a from a quadruple double. Did, it, you know, did, did, did it cross your mind to say to KC Jones, hey, you know, put me back in there. Let me, you know, let me try to get that. And I'll never forget what Larry said. And this is something that, you know, I, I is, is a great metaphor and a great story for, for the young players of today. He said, well, look, he said, he said you know, you first get in the league, um, and you know you want to get your you want to get your first contract after your rookie deal and stuff like that and so, but then you you get to a point where it's really only about winning and so uh, you know at this point you know those 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 things having to do with statistics you know they don't mean nothing to me you know uh. and so that that was the answer I mean you talk about a a beautifully simplistic uh. answer. To a question like and like you know in today's world you know with social media and all that kind of stuff, there there's there's an undue pressure on players to go for stats and so it's that's one of that's one of the forces that um, you know has 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 really changed the complexion of of sports today and so uh, you know it's it's really just an interesting study between two different eras. Yeah, I I still look back, and I know you were there for that that game in '86 when he uh, played the game left-handed and went for 47, 14, and 11 in Portland. I I I I think I saw the tape of it once, and I think he he had one right-handed shot or something. It was maybe maybe we it's all apocryphal now, but I look back at it and I go, how <laughs> he's right-handed and he played the game pretty much left-handed. Uh, well. Yeah, and I, you know, I was, <laughs> yeah, I was on the bench for that one, and I, I don't know if if <clears throat> if I would say that he played the game left-handed. I think what happened was he scored the first eight points of the game left-handed, <laughs> and then somebody from our bench yelled out to Jerome Kersey, "Hey, Jerome, wait till he starts playing right-handed." <laughs> That's know, but, great. But look at it, you know that yeah. that team that team was so good. And 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 had, and had such great players and was so together um, and had such fun. I mean, you know that 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 group of guys. It was it was nonstop. You know, find, finding things to bust, bust each other's chops about. Yeah. You know, uh, all, all that kind of stuff. And you know, they 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 were they were the most competitive group of guys I've ever been around. But they loved to have fun competing. And that, better, was, uh, that that made it even more special to be around those guys. Better than this. Better than the Warriors or the Bulls, the teams that people say are head and shoulders above anything they've seen. Some the well, greatest. I wasn't, I was I wasn't on those teams. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm just ta- I'm talking about teams that I was sure I was a part of. And um, forty and one at home. 
I mean, if you were 40 and one on the parquet, that to me is just phenomenal. Yeah, right well, there. Look, that, you know, a, a record like that um, would yeah. be, would be, you know, I just don't, I just don't see how it could happen in, in today's game. But um, yeah, and, and ironically, the team we lost to that year was the Portland Trailblazers at home. All right, I, I, Rick Carlisle's given us tremendous time. I want to give, I want to ask about Jim Laranega and your connection really quickly because I think it's, it, it shows about those fork in the roads in life and how every little thing makes a difference. And if you could, if you could say like how a guy from Lisbon, New York, upstate, had never really played against African-American players and ended up at the University of Maine, two good seasons, but wanted to go to that next level, ended up, you know, not getting transferred the, 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 uh, the new school way, which is a coach finds out your AAU coach and tries to recruit you through the back channels. You, you made some calls on yourself and you ended up at Virginia. Can you tell people how that happened? I think it's such a great story. Well, you know, I grew up in a, in a very small town, Ogdensburg, New York, up in northern New York, and um, it was a very isolated area. Um, I did get a chance to play with a lot of really terrific players at a couple of the universities that were close by, uh, St. Lawrence University and Potsdam State. I used to tag along with my dad, who was, you know, kind of a legendary uh, rec player back in those days. <laughs> you know, play, playing against those guys um, – was really, you know, that that helped me get better and have a chance to, you know, eventually stick in the NBA. But, you know, when I came out of high school, I believe I was a 30-point scorer my senior year. There were a couple of Division One schools that, that looked at me, but they just, they just didn't – I don't think they believed that that level of competition um, was going to translate, you know, to me being able to play at their places. You know, the University of Vermont was – you know, had some interest – um, you know, Iona College had some interest, but neither one of them was willing to step up with a Division One scholarship. And so I had one partial offer to uh, Lemoyne College. And so um, I just decided uh, I wanted to go to Division One. I. I wanted to have a chance to see if I could do that. Um, and the only option was to go to prep school. So I went to Worcester Academy in Massachusetts played for uh, a great coach, the great Tom Blackburn, who is a, a storied um, New England prep coach. Uh, played for a year there, got one Division One offer to the University of Maine. Um, and while I was playing um, at Worcester, you know, there was this one coach that kept coming to all my games, and uh, he was a young guy. Um, who was the head coach at American International College in Springfield, which was Division Two, and I believe that was around the time when Mario Eli was was going to was was playing at American International, and so um, you know I ended up, I ended up going to Maine, and after a couple of years at Maine, I decided I, I wanted to transfer and and see if I could play at the highest level, you know, in the ACC, and. Uh, so in those days, to be able to transfer schools, you know, you, you had to get permission from your university. So I had to talk to the University of Maine about that. And then you had to make the phone calls. And so one of my calls was to a guy who had gone from 
Hmm. Um, being the head coach at American International College to now being an assistant for Terry Hahn, and that was Jim Laranega. And so, uh, you know, long story short, you know, I ended up taking a visit to Virginia. Um, They took a chance on me. Um, I transferred down there and had to sit out a year. Uh, Ralph Sampson was was a sophomore the you know the spring that I uh, transferred down there, and I never dreamed in a million years that there's any way that Ralph would still be around um, when I became eligible to play as a junior at Virginia. But sure enough, he was. Um, it was an amazing experience getting to play with him because every game was on national TV. Um, and then, you know, Ralph went on to have a very successful NBA career that was cut short by injury, and he was uh, enshrined in the Hall of Fame uh, both for his play in the NBA. He was an all-star just about every year he played, but also he was three-time National Player of the Year in college. And so yeah. I was extremely fortunate there. And, um, you know, from there, hey, you know, I, I got a great education at Virginia you know, got drafted by Boston, and we've we've kind of already talked about that. But uh, you know, I just yeah. been ex- been extremely fortunate to have a very wide ranging group of group of experiences. You know, going from Augensburg, New York, to Worcester, yeah. to Maine, to Virginia, to Boston. Then I played with New York for a couple of years. Then I you know um, played for a you know, a month for the New Jersey Nets and got cut and hired as a coach in the same phone call. And that's how my coaching career got started. And so, uh, you know, I've been, I think, I think this may be my 30th year in, in coaching um, is either an assistant or a head coach coming up. Wow. Um, and it's been, uh, it's been, been an enormous blessing. Well, I just, uh, I mean, I can't thank you enough for the time. I, I would go into the Chaminade game, that was the closest I ever got to you, by the way, uh, that great team. I watched the game of the century, Ewing versus Sampson, which you were a part of. Um, and I and I was and and then Chaminade in Hawaii. I was like 300 yards from you guys at a little Hawaii Pacific College practice. And um, what I love about not the game, but the aftermath one, there's no full footage of that game, but you You've got this great relationship with the coach, uh, Merv Lopes um, from Chaminade, who's shoot 86 now. And 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 uh, Larinaga was, of course, on the bench then. He ends up going from a guy that was upset that night to he becomes the ultimate giant killer in the final four with George Mason. And I look at where you, I mean, shoot, the only guy that was there that I found out media-wise was Michael Wilbon. He actually was there covering a Maryland game for the Washington Post, and he, sh- and he stopped by just to see Virginia. And uh, nobody, nobody, no media hardly even saw it. And I, I just look back, not as so much at the game, but the relationships fostered afterwards and what it meant to you guys. Yeah. Hey, look, it was, that was uh, some experience. I mean, they, they played an amazing game. Murph Lopes coached an amazing game. Um, it, it's something, it, it was an experience that, you know, I've been in since then, um, with teams that have pulled big upsets. And, you know, going through something like that, being on the other side of it, um, is something you draw from, it, from and you say, look, <laughs> that makes me believe that this, that, you know, that these kinds of things can happen in your favor too, you know, if you, if you, if you believe and you do the work to prepare. So, um, yeah, and look, Murphy came 
a very good friend. He ran Pete Newell's Big Man Camp, which I worked at for eight or ten years, along with Tim Gergerich and Kiki Vandeway and Mark Ivoroni and a great group of of other coaches. And so, uh, look, we've got we've got an amazing thing going um, yeah. with this game of basketball. I mean, you know, NBA basketball in particular, you know, is just uh, uh, from a business standpoint <clears throat> where that thing has gone, but. Uh, you know, the, the, those days over in Hawaii working Pete Newell's camp with, with those guys um, and learning the game and, and teaching the game, you know, in the, in, in, in the hot gyms and stuff like that, mm. and, you know, is what it's all about. And uh, so, again, I, yeah. you know, it's been, it's been decades now, but the time has flown by and uh, so many great people along the way. Well, thank you so much. The next podcast will be strictly about music, your ping pong, and um, and the people the, the people that actually think you're Jim Carrey still on the street. Other than that, um, the, this is I, I don't know. It's, this has been great, Rick. Thank you so much, um, and and I hope you have a great rest of the summer. And I think, like everybody, I'm rooting for the Mavericks next year. Well, that's good to hear. I've uh, I've enjoyed it, Mike. Take care and uh, best wishes to you. Yeah, thank you. You and you and your family. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Thanks so much to Mavericks head coach Rick Carlisle for going overtime with us today. Thanks also to producer Bruce Bernstein, a huge Rick Carlisle fan, and our editor Ben Wolfen. Please sample our other shows from Pure Hoops Media such as Catch and Shoot with Noah Kozloff and Adam Stanko. If you haven't heard their show with Larry Brown, you need to check it out. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt has former supervisor of NBA officials Ronnie Nunn this week and had ESPN's Cassidy Hubbard last week. And the Pure Hoops podcast with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman drops every Friday. Listen, rate, review, tell your friends, and enjoy. Until next time, I'm Mike Wise. See ya! The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.